The art world is constantly changing. Fortunately, there is a great website called Art and Object that will help keep you up to date. It was Art and Object that first alerted me to the passing of the great PBS icon and art historian Sister Wendy, who did so much to make art so accessible for many others and certainly inspired me. So get caught up with Art and Object at artandobject.com. That's www.artandobject.com. Hi, Art Curious listeners. This is the second part of our very first episode from Season 1 back in 2016. We are redoing it to give it a slightly better sound and to give you some further updated information. So here it is, the second part of Episode 1, Is the Mona Lisa a Fake? Previously on the Art Curious Podcast, we talked about the Mona Lisa, one of the world's most famous works of art, if not the most famous work of art and how it was stolen for the first time, perhaps, in 1911. And when we last left off with our story, the Mona Lisa had been gone for almost two years. No one knew where she was, and no one knew who took her. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier or even more fun than you can imagine. And today we are continuing the story of the disappearance, reappearance, and possible forgery of the most famous painting in the world. Welcome to the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Leonardo da Vinci's striking masterpiece, The Mona Lisa, had been gone for nearly two and a half years, and her case deemed a failure for over one year when, in December of 1913, a strange letter appeared at the shop of Alfredo Gerry, an art and antiques dealer in Florence, Italy. Gerry had recently put an ad in some local newspapers to drum up business, and so he was not surprised to receive an offer letter. But what was surprising in this case was that the envelope bore a postmark from Paris, when he didn't advertise there, and even more surprising was its contents. The note was from a person calling himself Leonardo, and it read as follows, quote, The stolen work of Leonardo da Vinci is in my possession. It seems to belong to Italy, since its painter was an Italian. My dream is to give back this masterpiece to the land from which it came and to the country that inspired it. Jerry was understandably cautious and disbelieving of this note, and so he sought the advice of the director of Florence's famed Uffizi Museum, a man named Giovanni Poggi, who suggested that Jerry write this so-called Leonardo, and arrange for a rendezvous in order to check out the work being offered. Both men figured that Leonardo's was a dubious claim, and surely a request for an in-person meeting would be of little interest to someone peddling a worthless forgery. But Jerry was surprised when Leonardo quickly responded with a yes. Yes, I'll gladly bring the painting to you. And so this is how, on Thursday, December 11, 1913, Jerry and Poggi found themselves walking warily behind a somewhat dodgy-looking man who introduced himself as Leonardo Vincenzo. 
Together, they meandered through the streets of Florence to a nearby hotel where Leonardo insisted the painting was safely waiting for the experts. So, like, yeah, right. You can basically imagine Jerry and Poggi thinking. But they played along, with the art dealer agreeing to Leonardo's requests for hundreds of thousands of Italian lira should Jerry be interested in purchasing said painting. What they saw in the hotel room, though, was what they never actually expected to see. The real Mona Lisa. Undamaged, intact, and marvelously preserved. Nestled like a newborn baby in a wrap of red silk inside a secret compartment built into the bottom of an unassuming suitcase. Jerry and Poggi were dumbfounded. Of course, neither of them were Louvre employees or Leonardo da Vinci experts, but both were fairly certain that this was the real deal. Somehow, miraculously, they convinced this Leonardo Vincenzo to let them remove the painting in order to take it to the Uffizi for authentication and examination. Jerry gently but urgently carried the painting away, and once out of earshot of Leonardo's hotel, Poggi notified the police, who nabbed the thief while he was in the midst of an afternoon nap, and then he was arrested. But I always think it's so strange. How could someone who, until moments earlier, had held the world's most sought-after work of art in his hands, be so cool and so calm, enough to snooze the day away? Who was this guy? His actual name, as it turns out, is Vincenzo Perugia, an Italian national who, wait for it, was a former Louvre employee whose trade was as a glazier, or a workman who fits panes of glass into windows and doors. In fact, he was the one who built that protective glass box frame for Mona Lisa, which would explain how he was so readily able to release the painting from its hold and why it was discarded gently instead of haphazardly. Perhaps Perugia felt a little bit of pride in his craftsmanship. Under investigation by Italian police, Perugia confessed the details of his crime. He noted that he entered the museum on the morning of Monday, August 21, 1911, sliding in behind other custodial employees and repairmen who performed many of their duties on Mondays while the museum was closed to the public. It really was an ideal time to undergo a great theft, considering the number of employees on site on Mondays was greatly limited, even in terms of security staff. And of course, having worked at the Louvre, Perugia had an advantage of A, being familiar with the museum's layout, and B, himself being a familiar and therefore unthreatening face to other Louvre employees. This meant that the crime was surprisingly easy for Perugia to pull off. When he discovered a moment when the Salon Carré was empty, Perugia lifted the Mona Lisa off the four iron pegs that secured it to the wall and took a nearby service staircase, where he quickly removed the panel from its protective glass cover in its frame. He then wrapped his worker smock around the painting tucked it swiftly under his arm, and left the Louvre through the same door by which he entered. He then confessed that he hid the painting in his Paris apartment, an admission that would later astonish and probably embarrass the police, who had originally questioned Perugia at the beginning of the investigation, as they had done with all Louvre employees current and former. The painting had actually been in Paris, right under their noses, the whole time. After two years of languishing in Perugia's hovel, Mona was then transported back to Italy when Perugia, with this high-minded mission, sought to repatriate her to her home country, mainly due to a misconception that it had originally been stolen from Italy instead of being brought to France by the artist himself. And with that, Mona Lisa returned to the limelight for the first time in years. All the Western world was ecstatic to hear the news that Mona Lisa had been found against all odds. As they did when she was abducted, newspapers around the globe trumpeted her return. She was a sensational headline and front page news. 
And after a groundbreaking two-week solo exhibition at the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, Mona was returned to the Louvre with the greatest fanfare on January 4, 1914. And like they did when she was missing, hundreds of thousands of people stormed the Louvre in order to see their icon safely back on display. Mona Lisa was finally home. In retrospect, this story seems like a fairy tale, almost Hollywood-like in its redemptive arc. A masterpiece stolen, presumed lost, and then rediscovered unharmed. But something also seems a little bit off. Remember how calm and relaxed Perugia was, enough to take a nap after Jerry and Poggi removed Mona Lisa from his possession. It's almost like it was a shock that he had actually gotten caught, as if he hadn't thought through the consequences well enough. And how about that patriotic claim he made in his note to Jerry as Leonardo, where he stated that his motive was as simple as wanting to return an Italian painting to Italy? But then why wait more than two years before returning it to Italy if that was his ultimate goal? Perugia seems to have been waiting for something. Money, surely. And it was discovered that he wrote home to his family bragging that he was about to become very rich. But what if he was waiting for something else? What if he was waiting for instructions from the real mastermind of the theft? In June of 1932, nearly 20 years after the Louvre regained its star attraction, a story appeared in the Saturday Evening Post, of all places, that reported an entirely different set of details. The article, titled Why and How the Mona Lisa Was Stolen, was written by a reporter named Carl Decker who claimed to have met a mysterious man in 1914 who revealed the quote-unquote true story to him while sitting in a cafe in Casablanca. This man introduced himself as Eduardo de Valfierno, a marquis from Argentina who proudly boasted of his long career as a very successful con man whose specialty was in the business side of art forgery. His literal partner in crime was a French artist, art restorer, and eventual art forger, Yves Chaudron, who, together with Valfierno, had supposedly made a killing creating fake Murillo paintings for unsuspecting tourists. Now, this was all well and good, but Valfierno wanted to make things a little more interesting. Go big or go home, right? So he formulated an idea to take advantage of the latest craze in the world of the ultra-rich. Newly minted millionaires and billionaires, particularly Americans, were fighting tooth and nail to outdo one another for the greatest private collections of art. And a side effect of this was that not only did the art market grow increasingly robust, but so did the market for very, very good forgeries. Of course, collectors either didn't know or didn't want to know if they were being offered forgeries. So, Valfierno thought, why not go whole hog with this idea and pretend to offer them the very best in the entire world? So he allegedly hired Chaudron to create six identical copies of the Mona Lisa, which Valfiano would then show around the world to the wealthiest of potential buyers. But in order for each collector to believe that he or she was holding the real deal, one thing had to happen for sure. The actual Mona Lisa had to disappear from the Louvre. Of course Valfiano was not going to do the dirty work himself. What if something went wrong and he was caught? And plus, he didn't know the ins and outs of the Louvre. He needed an insider to get the job done. So enter Perugia, a former Louvre employee who was not only familiar with the museum, but one who could be easily manipulated with cash and a little bit of nationalistic pride to steal Mona. While Valfierno prepped Perugia for his crime, Chaudron set up his easel at the Louvre in front of the Leonardo and meticulously copied every single detail of that little painting, 
essentially creating a template that he could later reproduce to exact scale in unaged wooden panels. He left nothing to chance, and he even formulated a method of producing the surface cracking endemic to old paint and varnish, something called crackalure, by using a high-powered electric fan pointed closely to the copy's surface. Chaudron attempted to recreate every centimeter as best as he could in order to keep any suspicious collectors off his back, including using methods and materials that would have been easily available during the Renaissance. But, of course, the beauty of the crime was that a collector would never have access to the real Mona Lisa in order to compare its intricate details. Each collector would then assume that he or she was offered the actual authentic painting. And since he or she could not advertise ownership, how would anyone know if there happened to be five other similar paintings swirling around the world? After the news broke that Mona was gone, Valfierno jumped into action. According to his statements in Carl Decker's article, he was able to quickly sell all six Mona Lisa copies, netting the equivalent of nearly $90 million for himself and for Chaudron. But there was a problem, and that problem's name was Vincenzo Perugia. Perugia was undoubtedly paid extremely well for his efforts, and the ridiculous plan could never have succeeded without his insider knowledge and technical skill. However, he quickly breezed through his funds and he needed another infusion of cash, and so he made a rash decision. For some reason, probably to keep distance from the Leonardo just in case it was handed over to the authorities, Valfierno had left the original painting in Perugia's hands, with the intention of returning to the thief with instructions on how to handle and dispose of the stolen painting when the time was right. But Perugia could not wait any longer, and he made the logical conclusion that the sale of the Mona Lisa would net him even more than the theft itself did. And so, in December of 1913, he contacted art dealer Alfredo Geri in Florence. Ah, the best laid plans. Valfierno was dismissive of Perugia in his statements to Decker, saying, quote, We would have returned the painting voluntarily to the Louvre in due time had not a minor member of the cast idiotically ran away with it. Unquote. Indeed, the most important thing to Valfierno was being able to pawn off the six fakes in the time period that the original painting was missing in action. But are we really to believe Valfierno at his word that his intention was to reinstate Mona Lisa back in the Salon Carré? She had become the world's most valuable painting, and he had direct access to her. I doubt that he would have wanted to give that up. Also, he was admittedly a crook and a liar. So it's plausible that honesty wasn't the best policy here, and that his words to Decker were bogus or simply said to just save face. But here's the big question. If he was successfully able to sell six fakes, who's to say that he wouldn't have asked Chaudron to create just one more? Swap it with Perugia's stolen original? and deposit that copy back at the Louvre. Okay, let's get to the bottom of this. If Perugia's nationalistic claims and motivation didn't seem plausible enough, then does Valfierno's? No, not really. If anything, it's even more far-fetched and cinema-ready. I will admit that it is far sexier to think about criminal masterminds and secret art forgeries floating around the world in the hands of furtive billionaires. But there are some serious issues with the Valfierno tale. First of all, there are no records anywhere verifying Valfierno's existence other than that Saturday Evening Post article. Sure, it could have been a pseudonym and Valfierno was probably opting to hide his true identity, but nothing remains of this supposed evil genius. And there's also the fact that this story didn't break until 1932. 
That's nearly 20 years after the painting returned to the Louvre, so why wait so long to tell the story? Then, let's not forget the tidbit about the six forgeries that Chaudron supposedly created. None of them have ever surfaced. Lastly, others have noted that Carl Decker wasn't the most truthful author around and that he often liked to spice up his prose with sensational stories of daring do. So what's more audacious than a swashbuckling tale centered around the greatest art theft of all time? As fun as it would be to believe that Decker's story is true, it really just isn't. That means that any suspicion that Chaudron and Valfierno may have stashed another fake Mona Lisa for return to the Louvre is equally ridiculous. The takeaway is that the facts point to the Mona Lisa at the Louvre as being the real deal. And as much as Chaudron may have attempted to copy every nook and cranny of Leonardo's masterpiece, you can't just fake the hand of an artist completely. And then there's that crackalore that he supposedly recreated. You can try your best to fake it, but crackalore ultimately acts like fingerprints. Each painting's crackalore is unique, and any conservator or curator with a magnifying glass would be able to exactly match up the lines across a painting with those seen in detailed photographs of the original. And upon her return, Mona Lisa was scoured and examined, not only for damage, but for verification of authenticity, which the Louvre confirmed and announced widely to the world. But is that the end of the story of the Mona Lisa? You know it's not. And that's coming up next, after this break. I always find it so inspiring to learn from experts who are passionate about sharing their knowledge. And that is one of the many reasons why I love The Great Courses Plus. I've mentioned a course before that I've loved taking on The Great Courses Plus, and that is The Fundamentals of Photography. In that course, National Geographic photographer Joel Satori has great tips and tricks that all of us can use to take better photos today, no matter what type of camera you're using. So there's no need to feel like you need to buy a fancy camera if all you have is your iPhone or Android. You can still benefit hugely from learning how to properly light your scene, for example, or how to really crop an image well. And I want you to enjoy this course from The Great Courses, too. So I've arranged this fantastic limited-time offer just for my listeners. You can buy a digital copy of Fundamentals of Photography for only $9.99 today, and that is up to $200 in savings. Or you can get unlimited access to enjoy this course and so many more with a special free trial to The Great Courses Plus. With The Great Courses, you can learn about anything that interests you, with over 11,000 audio and video lectures to stream across so many different topics for free. But to be able to get either of these fantastic offers, you must use my special URL. That is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. So go now and learn from the very best out there. Try it out at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. I love me a really nice wrap dress. I just love them, and I have been wearing them for years as my curator attire. But as much as I love a great Diane von Furstenberg wrap dress, I really don't want to pay full price. Which is why I love using Poshmark, which allows me to shop from millions of closets all across America to find the very best deals. Poshmark has tons of brands to choose from. Everything from Louis Vuitton to Chanel, Lululemon and J. Crew, and even kids gear is available from practically every brand you can imagine. Now, you will not believe the deals that you can find on Poshmark. So I shopped around for those Diane von Furstenberg wrap dresses, and I found items that typically go for four or $500 being sold on Poshmark for $100 or $150. That is an amazing deal. Poshmark is the easiest way to buy and sell fashion items for men, women, and children, 
Even Halloween costumes are available on there. And to make things even simpler, you can download the Poshmark app and do all of your shopping straight from your smartphone. And do you have some goodies to sell? You can get in on the Poshmark action and open your own closet with them. And here's the great news. Listeners of Art Curious can get $5 off your first purchase. Just enter the invite code ARTCURIOUS. That's one word, ARTCURIOUS. Shop Poshmark today. I got married a decade ago, and while the planning process was exciting and fun, it was also very, very stressful. I was registered at three different stores and popped back and forth between them and my own wedding website. It was a total mess. But luckily for all of you today, there's Zola. Zola takes the stress out of wedding planning with free wedding websites, your dream wedding registry, affordable save the dates and invitations, and easy to use printing tools, all in one convenient and totally beautiful site. You can start by creating your free easy to use wedding website on Zola, and you can choose from over 100 beautiful designs that fit any couple style and every type of wedding. And plus, they are easy to use. You can also put your Zola registry on your wedding website so that guests have all the details they need and they can buy your wedding gift in one amazing place. The Zola store has the widest selection of gifts at all different price points, so there is something for every guest to give. There are over 500 top brands on Zola, everything from OXO to Cuisinart to Sonos and Airbnb. And for the minimalist in your life, you can also create cash funds for your honeymoon, future home, new puppy, or anything you want. As a travel addict, this would have been my personal favorite thing. And it is so easy on Zola's site to request money for round trip airfare or a honeymoon cruise. So to start your free wedding website and also get $50 off your registry on Zola, go to zola.com slash artcurious. Check out Zola today at zola.com slash artcurious. Perfect Keto Bars are a great tasting keto-friendly bar with ingredients you can actually trust because their ingredients are all natural. Keto Bars are for people who eat a ketogenic diet, like to avoid unnecessary blood sugar spikes, want a clean snack option, and are looking to eat a low-carb load guilt-free. Perfect Keto spent over a year on R&D and went through 14 different iterations to find the right balance of ingredients that would make a great tasting bar without spiking blood sugar. And all of that means that they did the hard work of balancing keto macros for you, and each bar is only three grams of net carbohydrates. Plus, the main benefit for me is that they are so convenient and totally portable. I can pop a perfect keto bar into my bag and know that I am ready to go. And you can be too. For 30% off site-wide, everything from those great bars to keto coffee and other protein supplements, visit perfectketo.com art and enter promo code art at checkout. I started on a keto diet last spring and I love it, but finding little workarounds have been a little bit difficult, like how to curb my sweet tooth. So luckily Perfect Keto does that for me with their almond butter brownie bar. And so I get to feel like I'm splurging while totally sticking to my keto diet. And the almond butter brownie bar is so good that it makes me look forward to the other flavors that Perfect Keto is launching in February. Their salted caramel and lemon poppy seed. All of this isn't even getting into their amazing drink options. I'm obsessed with matcha, and so I love their matcha MCT oil powder. So again, for 30% off site-wide, everything from those great bars to keto coffee and that MCT matcha powder, visit perfectketo.com art and enter promo code art at checkout. 
Remember, for 30% off site-wide, visit perfectketo.com art and enter promo code art at checkout. Welcome back to Art Curious. For me personally, another mystery remains about the Mona Lisa, and it all comes back to the story my professor briefly told us in class. What really made my art history professor so convinced that the Louvre's Mona was still a fake? A hugely intelligent, highly educated, brilliant historian, and one who seemed neither inclined to the rumor mill nor myth, I must admit, she was sure that this work was a skilled forgery. I remember that she leaned a little bit on the Valfierno story slash fable, but then I recalled that she noted that the Mona Lisa had been stolen twice. Twice. So when was the second time? Because most books and articles point to the 1911 case, but very little, if anything, is mentioned of a supposed second heist. But it is possible that she was stolen again, this time during World War II, when those ne'er-do-well Nazis coveted the most important painting in the world. I'm going to guess that you're not that surprised in the turn of events. After all, most of us are already pretty familiar with the idea of the Monuments Men, a group of allies who were charged with protecting the great art that was feared as potential targets for looting and endangerment during the war. And if you would like more information about this, I highly recommend you listen to episode number 29 of the Art Curious podcast when we specifically talk about the Monuments Men. Art was specifically vulnerable during this period for two main reasons. First, art needed to be shielded from any bombing or outright destruction from the war itself. But there was also another plan being hatched that equally imperiled Europe's greatest pieces of art. One of Hitler's ideas was to build an incredible museum in his hometown of Lanz, Austria, with the intention of stocking it with the most important works of art in the entire world. And the best way to do that, he figured, was to steal it. And unfortunately, the Nazis were all too successful at following these orders. Art historian Noah Charney estimates that about 5 million objects were stolen during World War II. So was Mona Lisa one of them? Well, as Charney narrates in his book, The Thefts of the Mona Lisa, on stealing the world's most famous painting, the Nazis thought they had stolen Mona. During the war, the Nazis, under the watchful eye of a fierce SS commander named August Eigruber, began stashing the spoils destined for the Lance Museum in an abandoned salt mine in the picturesque area known as Altusay, which is about 80 kilometers east of Salzburg. The mandate from Eigruber was that if art could not be defended against the Allies, the mine was to be utterly destroyed, with priceless Rembrandts, rare Vermeers, and everything else inside of it. But was the Mona Lisa stashed there too? Charney says that there's a certain amount of confusion, because while two primary source documents include the Mona Lisa as part of the Altusay loot, others, including inventories of the mine, make no mention of it. So what actually happened? Was it looted and hidden by the Nazis at Altusay or not? Okay, it's almost impossible to say. And as Charney describes, the Louvre itself has historically been rather tight-lipped on the subject. Charney notes that the only surviving Louvre documents state that the Leonardo painting had been crated up on August 27, 1939, and was listed as being sent out to one of five chateaux around France for safekeeping from the invading Axis troops. And then, a 1945 document attests to its safe return at the Louvre. Nothing exists to document those in-between times. But Noah Charney offers a very interesting explanation. He writes that Louvre officials revealed the existence of an identical copy of the Mona Lisa dating from the 16th century. In other words, dating from roughly the same time period of the original's creation. 
Now, let's take note of Charney's use of the word identical. The Louvre itself does not describe this painting as a semi-close match, but instead says it is so authentic that it is hardly possible for a non-specialist to identify it as a copy. This reproduction was one of thousands of works that were gathered after the war in what became known as the National Recovery Museum, which was the home of works of art whose original owners could not be located. The Leonardo copy was marked with an inventory number MNR265, and it languished in storage for five years, unclaimed, until authorities passed it along to the Louvre. Funnily enough, from 1950 until the very recent past, it apparently hung on a wall outside the private offices of the Louvre's museum director. By sorting through this evidence, Charney, whose own expertise is in art theft, has come to the following conclusion. Yes, a painting was indeed created in 1938, but the Louvre created up the copy, not the original, and sent the copy onwards into the unknown. Now, assuming that the Mona Lisa would be a prime target for Nazi looters, the Louvre probably kept the original hidden in Paris, while allowing the copy to be taken. As Charney says, quote, This would explain why the Mona Lisa did return from Altusay, but why it also may be that the Mona Lisa never left Paris. It was the copy that was stolen, hidden at Altusay, and later recovered, unquote. The Mona Lisa has not left her home at the Louvre in over four decades, even though she was met with clamoring crowds in the United States in 1963 and in Japan in 1974. In 2011, the museum's head of painting, Vincent Pomered, declared that it was absolutely unthinkable that their most popular painting would ever travel again, mainly due to the fragile state of the panel. But think, too, of the riotous response that tourists to the Louvre might have in Mona's absence. Certainly, the Louvre would not want to deal with such a headache if it wasn't necessary. These reasons are legitimate and totally reasonable. But if you are a conspiracy-minded person, they might also read as convenient spins to hide the truth from an unsuspecting public. Without the opportunity to borrow the work and see it in another institution, art experts from all over the world do not have the ability to closely examine the work with their own eyes and scientific instruments. Insiders have noted that the Louvre specifically sources all conservators and inspectors internally and does not ever, or often at least, allow outsider access to the painting and that many requests to conserve the work have been denied flat out. And though the Mona Lisa has twice been attacked in the past, and the subject of art attacks was also analyzed in an episode of Art Curious, that's episode number 11 specifically, doesn't her current level of protection seem a little intense? Bulletproof glass, a sizable distance, a crowd reflecting cordon, two security guards, and let's not forget the ever-present security cameras. Well, no, it's not overkill because the work is literally invaluable, and it makes sense to protect it within an inch of its life. But it also does keep each and every person at an extreme distance. So who's really to notice whether or not the Mona Lisa on display is authentic? For the record, I choose to believe that the Mona Lisa on view is indeed the real painting created by Leonardo da Vinci in the 16th century. To me, so much of a work of art's value lies in being seen. And so it makes sense to me to have a masterpiece like this on view. But do I have actual proof that the painting, or any painting that's on display, is real? No. I simply accept the information provided to me by the experts. But even I must admit that if I really, really wanted to keep the world's most priceless work of art safe and secure, it sure makes a lot of sense to put a nearly identical copy on display in its stead. I would lock up the original away in the vaults of the institution 
and keep everyone at enough of a distance that even a professional wouldn't be able to really tell the difference. And then, the daily crowds of thousands of tourists would inadvertently help to make it even harder to view the painting at all. So, honestly, if you were entrusted with the Mona Lisa, wouldn't you be tempted to do the same? Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. Anchor Light is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchor Light encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. For more information about our show, including images, contact details, and links to all of our previous episodes, go to our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. Check back in a few more weeks as we redo some of our top episodes, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful works of art history. <laughs>